Good evening, you blood-sucking freaks, and welcome to Slow Motion Triple Feature, a podcast in which three friends watch three movies over the course of three weeks. Each month, a different friend will select a different triple feature for their friends to enjoy and discuss. Slow Motion Triple Feature is one of the many fine podcasts brought to you by the American Friend Institute. I'm your host, Mike Keller, and I am joined today by my good friends, by my good friends, Kit and Andrew. Tonight, we're continuing Kit's Secret Successes Triple Feature with 1988's Vampire's Kiss, directed by Robert Bierman and starring Nicolas Cage and Jennifer Beals. Kit, tell us a little about why you selected this film for your triple feature. Um, well, I feel a little bit like a chode because <laughs> like Sleepaway yeah. Camp, I was also inspired to watch this movie by How Did This Get Made originally, like the first time I watched it. Uh-huh. And it was actually very similarly their discussion of the ending of the film that made me go, I need to watch that. Obviously, it's their job to 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 talk about how crazy and and silly and bad movies are, but I think that this movie is actually, again, like very psychologically sophisticated and brilliantly puts like like manifests visually a deteriorating psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Very, I think it has a lot in common with Eyes Wide Shut. I think it's shot, like, unlike Sleepaway Camp, I think it's shot very well. There are some really cool individual shots. There's some really cool homages. There are some weird, unsettling choices that I feel like I... It's strange because what I... What I how I describe this movie is, like, I'm not known for understanding movies i would say (laughs) like i'm not known for my ability to understand films but i feel like i understand this movie so well like when people talk about like his accent being insane i watch it like the first time i watched this or the first time i heard him you know probably on the podcast like they played audio of his performance and i'm like that's a california intellectual and then you like look it up and he based it on his dad who was a literary professor at a at um a university in California. Okay. Long Beach, I think. And like I I think a lot of the stuff that makes, you know, this performance very memeable, like I love his performance. I think it's so brilliant and I think the more that you learn about the more you hear him talk about he it's his favorite performance he's ever given it's his favorite movie he's ever done he's said that in really multiple places yes mm-hmm. huh. um like in many interviews like over you know decades he has said that this is his favorite movie and i think part of that has to do with it being the place where he actually feels like he discovered his acting style like what his acting style is okay um and kind of 
he didn't abandon method, but he expanded it a lot. Um, he calls it his, um, what did he call it? His like experimental, like it was his playground. It was his laboratory. That's what he says. He calls Vampire's Kiss his laboratory um, because he was coming off of Moonstruck and was kind of a little bit, he actually like quit the movie at certain point, like at one point because he was getting a lot of pressure to follow up Moonstruck with something very like mainstream and like star affirming. Um, and then he came back to it and he kind of used it. And then he also says that it's sort of feeds directly into his second favorite performance of his, which is face off, <laughs> which like with face off, he was like, I was trying to do the kind of experimentation that I did on vampires kiss, but in like a huge mainstream blockbuster movie yeah. and it, see if those two things can be it's in together. there. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that this movie is, it's genuinely funny. Like it's funny on purpose. I'm not watching it ironically and laughing at it. Like it is funny intentionally. I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk too much to like stop me, but like, honestly, his performance in this reminds me is like as comedically palpable to me as like Jim Carrey. Um, and that made me think a lot about how the similarities between him and Jim Carrey, like, and I was watching a lot, you know, for in research, I was like watching Nicolas Cage talk about his acting a lot or reading a lot of stuff about his acting. And he talked about how in uh, Raising Arizona, his inspiration for that character was a cartoon bird, like mm -hmm. Woody Woodpecker. And if you look at what he's wearing and how his hair is styled in that movie, it's virtually identical to Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which was also inspired by a parakeet. Like, like that both, yeah. And so I think like, I think people in a way don't realize how, that Nicolas Cage is a comedic actor. Like, they think that he's being insane and that he's, like, funny unintentionally in trying to be overly dramatic. But I think, like, he is conscious. And the reason he was attracted to this movie was because it was such a weird combination of horror and comedy. And he thinks that those two genres have a lot in common and um, go together very well. Um. Yeah, and I can say, you know, more throughout here, but basically just like I think it's a great performance in a pretty well-directed movie that looks pretty damn good and a story that is strange, but I think brilliant and insightful and better than American Psycho. Okay. Well, Andrew, uh, had you seen this before? I had not. What did you think? Oh, what did I think? Um, so... Coming into it, I think it took it took a bit. Uh, I will say I had trouble following it in a way that did not feel like the movie was trying to be vague. Uh, it was like in like a, a an editorial sense, like I couldn't I could not follow the edit of the movie for probably the first 35 to 40 minutes. They were at, he does talk about in the director's commentary um, that they were, the studio did not understand the movie at all. And they asked them to cut a lot of scenes and Nicolas Cage expressed his hope that like someday it would be kind of restored to. Well, good, good job. Fuller vision. <laughs> good job studio. Cause now I can't understand mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah. 
But um, so I will say that like it really was not grabbing me up top. Like I was really, really struggling with the movie. I it and it took me a really long time to sink into his accent. It really, really bugged me in a Adam Sandler doing Little Nicky kind of way. Um, but I definitely found myself more and more drawn in as the movie progressed, and I felt like I was able to grasp what the movie was saying. And um, to, like, double down on how good the last... I mean, not even just the ending, but just, like, the last 25 minutes of this movie is, like... Oh, man. I, totally gripped. Totally gripped. Like, um, that last, like, uh, that fantasy scene with his therapist mm -hmm. at the end, where it's just cutting between him on... And it's hilarious and heartbreaking and yes. um, just everything about it is 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 just uh, like perfectly dialed in. And it is and it is I, it is so strange to me to feel that way in a movie that I was like genuinely not like that doesn't happen very often where like you walk into a movie and you're just and I'm not saying that I know, you know I don't know what Mike's experience is. And I know you love this movie, Kit, but just like I was genuinely not having fun. And then it turned into like something I thought was incredible. <laughs> I think it's amazing the way that that, I mean, that's what made me watch the movie. So like, I totally agree. And I think it's amazing the way that scene pays off the extremely strange choices he's making at the beginning, because in the doctor scene, the contrast between who he was or who he is in that fantasy with his therapist and who he is, what he has deteriorated into is like suddenly the guy in the fantasy seems like <laughs> a fairly normal, like functional, sure, attractive, charismatic person. And he he like it's weird because like at the beginning of the movie, that guy was the fucking weirdo, and now <laughs> <laughs> he seems so together by comparison, even though it's like a fantasy version of himself, but it's like he looks handsome and like, you know, neat and clean and and then the way that he looks, like that's the thing that makes me go, like people make fun of Nicolas Cage's acting so much, but who do you want doing that scene other than Nicolas Cage? Dennis Quaid was attached to this movie for a while. Mm-hmm. And then mm -hmm. he didn't. And then he did. Yeah, I don't. Like, what the fuck was that gonna be? <laughs> I know. This is something that I think. I think about Nicolas Cage a lot. Um, I think. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that really has kind of made like solidified the sort of memification of Nicolas Cage is just the sheer number of bad movies that he's done in the last 15 years just due to his like financial problems like he like he he hasn't necessarily like abandoned his craft like you can turn on no. any number of straight to video crap fest that he's in and he's doing he's doing his thing and i think i think it's when the the you know, I think it's when t I think it's two things. It's when what he's doing doesn't make sense for the movie, so maybe like he's miscast, mm -hmm. or the movie itself is so bad that it just it doesn't it just it sort of doubles down on that. Like you're just like, oh, I we're getting a bad performance and a bad movie. He's like Johnny Depp or Marlon Brando, where in that he's like bad with money, 
So he has to do really shitty movies. <laughs> yeah. And but- not not Johnny Depp isn't there yet, but like the track that they're on. Except he hasn't given up trying to be good in any movie he's doing. No, and I think he's he's a de- he's a deserved Oscar winner. Uh, I think he should have two. He uh, didn't win for adaptation, I which know. is insane. And which is insane. <laughs> I've always thought that he did. That's how that's how insane that is. As I've always yeah. said, he's a two time Oscar winner. Stop making fun of him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. But I can't say that what Nicolas Cage does isn't weird. It is. It's a weird thing. No, I- like you, you listen to him. He. I've listened to this clip of him talking about, um. Ghost Rider two. Hmm. Like a hundred times, and he's just like, uh, and I love listening to him talk about it. But he also sounds like a fucking lunatic. Like, he he he's like, I was I I came to set uh, dressed as like a, a shaman, and I was yeah. wearing all kinds of like crystals, and I and I put like a black uh, uh, lenses in my eyes, and it's just like that's so bizarre, and like. I know neither of you have seen Ghost Rider 2, but like it's, I have, I watched. It. Oh, okay. Well, kind of this. It's, it's it remind like there's there's you know notes of of vampires kiss in that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a horrible movie, and it's like I don't I don't know. It's the things that he does to get to the place that he goes are very in, it's very inaccessible for people to understand. It sounds fucking stupid. Um, sometimes it looks stupid. But, but it's the it, same thing sometimes that Sometimes I think it just the like strikes that we the right love. chord. I agree. No, I agree. I think, um, yeah. Some, sometimes I wonder, though, sometimes I wonder if it's kind of like, um, kind of like how you talk about Stanley Kubrick. Like, did he really mm-hmm. have to be mean to Shelley yes. Duvall in order to get that performance out of her? Like, does Nicolas Cage really have to dress up like a shaman uh, in order to act like a weirdo? No. Uh, and I mean that in a in a, a complimentary way. <laughs> I think that, I mean, there's this video that maybe we've all watched on YouTube called like, what is it? Dumb or brilliant or something talking about Nicholas Cage's acting style and how I think I really agree with the thesis behind why he does what he does and that he refuses to conform to realism as the benchmark by which acting should be judged Mm -hmm. and his performances question why that would be the way we judge acting. Um, He loves silent film. He loves Kabuki. um, You know, he loves German expressionism. He's taking in, I mean, this, the, the brilliance of his performance in Moonstruck is that he's taking like these highly like heightened romantic you know, uh, Jean Cocteau (laughs) ideas of like a romantic figure and making them work in a modern movie. And that is a huge piece of the kind of uncanny, like magic weirdness that makes that movie succeed. And I, and it's also makes perfect sense for that film, which is probably why it's among his best performances. That's exactly what the character does for Cher. And I feel like in this movie, there's a weird alignment between the actor and the character he's playing where the actor is looking at Nosferatu and imitating Nosferatu. And then the character in the film is also imitating Nosferatu. It's really interesting to see a performance like this in a movie because I think it, in order to 
do this, it requires real collaboration. You know, like the mm -hmm. director has to be willing to let this dude potentially ruin his movie um, mm -hmm. or have the the sight to, to, to see what he's trying to do and know that it's right. Um, and, and an actor has to be brave, you know, to um, find, you know, work, work with the director, but then also have the ability to, um, you know, take a, take a real, anyway, take real chances. But, um, it, it's, it's interesting to me in that way that it's like, I know that this is very Nick Cage, but like in reading about him working with, uh, the director of this, well, I don't remember what his name is. Beerman. Beerman. Yeah. Um, it is interesting like how receptive they were to each other. Mm -hmm. While also having like a, like it was, I don't think it sounds like a fun movie to work on. No. But they were, I mean, it, when it was Beerman's first movie. So, but I think too, like as you're saying that, I was thinking about like the women that he's playing off of, like Maria Conchita Alonso is, does a really good job of responding to what he's doing in a way that feels like, pretty natural and like believable like which can't, must be a tall order i thought the, the therapist is awesome mm -hmm. the lady that he kills when she's kind of like playing back to him like his little weird vampire moves i was like yeah. this woman has no lines and she fucking she's, she's great. great in that little part she has um and i mean almost every scene he has is with women um there's like very few like other men in the movie that he like talks to um but I, but pe uh, the other actors are figuring out how to collaborate with that too and doing an effective job uh, i have a quote here he's um from a, from an article i read earlier today just kind of building off what we're talking about um he was talking about the therapy scenes and it's, it's this made me laugh this is like classic cage but he's like uh you know, it's actually extremely choreographed. Um, yes. And every one of those moves was thought out in my hotel room with my cat. Um, mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> I believe that. So I, I believe, you know, I know that people want to say, I also think just like people want to want to say this is bad acting. Uh, but it's like, this is like, this is work. Yeah. To, to do the even if you think it's weird and even if it doesn't resonate with you, this is like, you can, I feel just the energy that just that alone, like, I feel like if you, if you really allow yourself to see it, you can see a, a ton of effort on mm -hmm. the screen. And I think that counts for something. When you see like, like, you know, clips from Mandy where he's just like standing in a bathroom screaming. Great scene. And it is great. And it's the kind of scene that I think a lot of actors would die to do, but I would not die to watch most actors in that scene. Like, I want to see Nick Cage, Michael Shannon, like, they're just to stand in a room and scream in a way that's compelling is not, you know, your, your average actor can't make that something worth watching. You, your average actor, I feel like, can't make running down the street yelling, I'm a vampire, something <laughs> that... I want to see. Um, yeah, see, and I think I think too that like again, people who are laughing at this are probably missing that that is intentional. But um, yeah. I think I think another actor doing this uh, who doesn't have who isn't doing exactly what Nick Cage is doing. I think it makes you. I think it makes you uncomfortable. 
And I think it changes the entire movie. Mm-hmm. But then I was thinking about too, I was thinking about like, uh, uh, like they, they, they were trying to offer it to Steve Martin, I guess at one point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I could see that movie. It's totally different it's from different, this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I, and, and honestly, I would like to see that movie. Um, but it, it's just, it's so different, you know? It's like, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. This is like perfect casting. I can't. I don't think I would feel, at, I feel like if it was Steve Martin, it would be more of like a parody of vampire movies and kind of like dead in a dead men don't wear plaid sort of way. Sure. And I wouldn't feel, and I love Steve Martin so much, but I wouldn't feel so sad for him <laughs> at the well, end. I think it yeah. would, yeah. I think it would be a, a, a much lower stakes comedy, which is which is another thing that's really interesting about this movie is that it's the stakes are like one hundred percent in the performance. Uh, mm-hmm. The actual stakes of the movie are like nothing. Like it's mm-hmm. they're so incredibly low. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's all of the tension is one hundred percent driven by performance. Yeah. Anyway. Michael. Oh, well, you mentioned uh, how it was sad. And I, there, there was a part. It's towards the end when there's that whole long thing where he's talking to his therapist and we're kind of going mm-hmm. back and forth between like, who is yeah. he even talking to anyways? Um, and he says something like, uh, I just want to be loved. Mm-hmm. And it like cuts to him or it might even I don't remember if it cuts or what, but you see him and he's like covered in blood. He's completely disheveled completely out of his mind. And um, I overall wasn't, I found the movie very interesting. I wasn't super pulled into it because I, I was always like not really trusting because it's the first time I'd seen it. And yeah. so I was not sure where we were going. And so I was yeah. kind of always like analyzing it before like really uh, sort of being won over by it, I think. But anyways, he says that. And like, I did have this weird flash of like, the crazy guys you see like on the sidewalk when you're out mm-hmm. walking around who look like they haven't bathed in weeks and like nobody's probably talked to them and mm-hmm. who knows how long and they don't make sense when they say something. And it's just kind of like uh, I had this weird little and, you know, you always feel sympathy for those people or you always feel bad for them. But um, having watched this character basically collapse, it really sort of like very quickly brought home like how uh how sad it is when people go crazy uh or just you know you see then how people can wind up in such a state and like the movie i don't think was supposed to be like you know here's a slice of truth or something for you but you know it was it was an exploration of the character it wasn't trying to be like they they shot that with like a long lens and him the people who encounter him are not actors really so like walking by him yeah Yeah. and they ignore him basically Or, you know, which is, that's just real New Yorkers reacting to something that they probably see fairly regularly. Right. <laughs> Except that's it's Nicholas. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it was just, it kind of, because you always feel some sympathy for those people and you wonder, like, what happened to that guy? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yeah, in that moment where he was like, I just want somebody to love me, it was kind of, it was a combination of like, you suddenly see like their, you know, you know it, but that they're, you see their humanity. But mm-hmm. then also you think like, you know, that's something that all people want and like, good Lord, it's going to take a lot of work to get that man to a point where he could have a, you know, loving relationship with somebody or, um, kind of feel that. I don't know. I think that's, I think that's part of why I like it more than American psycho. Cause like Lee really hates American psycho, 
I think American Psycho is, I think the filmmaking and the performances are better than the text. Like my problem with American Psycho is that I think the writing is not good. Um, but I think the director and like Christian Bale bring a lot to it, but I don't think it has the same, like they're both satirical takes on like yuppie cultures and like they're both sort of <laughs> one calls yuppies like psychos and the other one calls them vampires but this one seems to have such it to me it has a deeper under it delves more into why the like consumption and like relentless consumerist conformity of yuppie culture it doesn't stop at, at pointing that out it also says look at the effect that this has on a person how and like Nicolas Cage has said like he thinks like everyone people are free to interpret the movie how they want to and he likes that about films but to him it was just about an an incredibly lonely guy and how that destroys him and how there is no intimacy yeah. in his life there's no he can't have a relationship with anyone every everyone is reduced to a commodity or an image like a, something consumable and he can't get beyond that to have and when the movie starts to introduce like you know the old men who have wives and things like that and you start to see like this is what he's pursuing but like the lifestyle that he leads does not give him a way to it's achieve that it's, yeah. al it's also interesting just thinking about American Psycho, how that performance, while theatrical at points, is um, it's also m m much more dialed back than what Cage is doing. But mm -hmm. uh, Patrick Bateman is, you're never empathetic towards him. He's pretty irredeemable the whole movie. Uh, but this in this movie is like huge performance. And yeah. And uh but in in some way, and at least in that last, I hated him most of the movie. But I do think towards the end, you do find a little bit of sympathy for him. Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, they're both using the kind of the kind of um, you're not sure whether what's happening is really happening or not for yeah. in both American Psycho and Vampire's Kiss. But I True. read, I was reading articles about like I read like an academic paper about like yuppie movies, and they were talking about how because Cage's performance is so huge, it like really res resists like audience identification with the character, um, which I think is true. And that's kind of what you're describing for like the first half of the movie. It's like, you know, you it's, it's hard to relate to this protagonist because he, the performance is so performative. Um, mm -hmm. But still, the fact that you end up where you end up with him, I think is a testament to the performance and the storytelling. And there were moments before that where I felt like there's the part where I f like he's in his office and he's like cowering next to his couch. I can't remember what's just happened. And somebody calls him and I can't remember if they want like the stupid contract or whatever, but he's 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 saying like I'm not here, tell them I'm not here. And like the way he's talking in that scene, I'm like, I feel so sad for like he's so palpably scared, and he's his he the his voice is so different from like any other voice that he uses in the movie. And then after he like rapes, it seems uh, Maria Conchita Alonso, and that's what like that 
you you can see that he recognizes that that has caused him to fully transform into a monster because that's the thing that makes him go I'm actually a vampire now and he goes and he buys these teeth and he's like it just it ramps up his transformation like so much and so even the fact that he's going out and doing this is like there's a like the conceit that I love the most in this movie is that when he really realizes he's like I'm a vampire holy shit I've turned into a vampire I can't see myself in mirrors anymore the first thing he does is go buy fake vampire teeth like the, the way cheap ones. the cheapest ones yeah <laughs> like the the There's... way that it, that it understands how illogical like delusion and insanity and all these things are that that a human being can be that like and that not just him because it's insane that's all of us all day long is like <laughs> saying something absurd and then like like pragmatically going about doing the things to make that true and yet still believing in the fucking fantasy of it at the same time is like that is i think just a brilliant premise for a film well so you guys were talking about american psycho a minute ago and um i like both films um i I, that's interesting because it really didn't even pop into my head when i was watching this but they're very similar but uh the only thing i had to add really was it's weird that both of these both of those movies um were i mean they basically become like memed to death like yeah patrick mm-hmm. bateman is everywhere like there's all sorts of memes with him and then same with uh cage in this um so i think there's they're both horror comedies they're both i think american psycho is more satirical and in a way darker um than vampire's kiss it's it doesn't have like you've been you've, like you said the sympathy uh toward Bateman that we kind of wind up finding for cage uh, or I, I can't remember what his character's name is. It's got well, kind of um, like a wider lens too on like yuppie culture. I feel like, like yeah, this, this yeah. movie feels so zeroed in on its main character even more. Yeah. So this feels more like a, like a character study of like, just mm-hmm. it could, it could be a yuppie breaking down like this, or it could be just any, you know, guy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It, it had not struck me at all that how much they have in common. I think that that's interesting, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess like for Vampire's Kiss, because I was so uncertain um, and this is like always a challenge for horror comedies, but because I was so uncertain the entire time I was watching it as to not necessarily what should I be feeling, but like what? Well, I mean, really just what is going on? It's hard. It's Mm -hmm. hard to really feel too much if you don't know what's going on. Yeah, Um, that. uh I wasn't I don't remember ever like laughing out loud. There were moments where I was like amused by how bizarre something was. I was I'm glad you said that about the accent too, the um, California intellectual, because I couldn't really place what that was supposed to be. And I was like, what? So for Cage, where did that come from? Or he was talks about he said in one interview, he's like, at one point, my dad like chose to like speak in that way, like okay. that it that it's meant to signal intelligence and like a fir- I mean and he's not like bagging on his dad I don't think but right. that it was performative 
basically that it was a choice yeah um and he and i think i think cage identifies a lot with like i think he's very cal like even though he's like kind of adopted new orleans like because he talked about when he was talking about doing um uh, bad lieutenant he said i wanted to be california klaus kinski like that was his like take on the character for that movie yeah um so i think he like and you know you think about like his first movies or things like valley girl and stuff like that um i i, f- I think maybe the <laughs> the southern california about him makes me have more of an affinity for <laughs> for his yeah. particular brand of weirdness or something i don't know um yeah. but to me it was just like i got it and i've read reviews where people were saying it was like transylvanian and i'm like no <laughs> he's Mm-mm. a southern californian guy trying to sound smart like that just like totally makes and the fact that it it's more pronounced when he's around other people, like trying to impress people. Mm. And then when he's by himself or with his therapist, he's not really doing it very much. Um, yeah. By the end of the film, he's not really doing it at all. Um, yeah. I, I really liked that choice. <laughs> also, Pauline, Pauline Kale loves his, loves his performance. Oh, she, did she like the film? Yeah. Well, she said, um, she said, uh, Nicholas Cage and Vampire's Kiss does some out of the way stuff that love that you love actors in silent movies for doing and he makes it work with sound. The picture seems to crumble because the writer and director don't distinguish Lowe's fantasies from his actual life, which I think speaks to the problem that you guys have and a kind of a risk inherent to the movie is you have to watch it for a while before you realize like oh wait he's not this isn't actually a vampire movie which i didn't have that burden because i knew from the beginning that he wasn't really a vampire (laughs) so but uh she went on to say um with cage in the role we certainly see the delusions at work this daring kid starts over the top and just keeps going he's airily amazing as a manhattan literary agent a poser with a high-flown accent and a pouty snobbish stare he does some of uh and that would i repeated that he's something between a horror and a picture and a black comedy this may be the first vampire movie in which the modern office building replaces the castle as the site of torture and degradation um i did i had a few little notes um mm-hmm. one that made me laugh was just in the background of a shot when he's out on the street there was a restaurant called bagel buffet um <laughs> which i couldn't really i couldn't really picture what the heck that would be but i thought that was funny um i really thought that the uh using his uh his couch flipped upside down as his coffin especially like just even the way it moved the sound perfect. yeah <laughs> uh i really like that um and then i noticed I only noticed it towards the beginning. I don't know if it disappeared or if I just didn't notice it later, but at his desk at his office, there's a, uh, some drawers behind him and there's a picture of Kafka. Yes. And so that somewhat early on tipped me off to, um, this movie there. I've never seen a picture of Kafka in a movie that wasn't weird. <laughs> um, and I even like, so like in twin Peaks season three, there's a big picture of Kafka on one of the walls, like in, um, yeah one of the guy's offices. Um, So it tipped me off to both like this one's going to be weird, but also like it's probably, you know, and you can throw that in, I'm sure to a shitty movie, but like it's probably going to at least be worth paying attention to. Like um, whoever's making this has some sort of uh, uh, maybe larger intention, uh, larger ambition, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, so, yeah, yeah, so I noticed that and 
I guess that also was, that, that he's was playing my... a literary agent. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I was reading a With, little bit like a literal vampire, basically. Yeah, <laughs> I was reading about the uh, like making of this movie, and I read a lot about the writer, and um, it, it's interesting. He was in a toxic relationship, or at least that's how he characterizes it. Although reading it from her perspective, it sounds like maybe he's just a prick. But uh, apparently, like early on, so basically, the when when he was with this woman and she told him to write a movie because he was I don't know being an asshole or whatever. So she like mm-hmm. left him to write a movie and he wrote it. He wrote this, and then sent it for her to look at and she was like oh god this is our relationship and the interest the thing that resonated with me is that she said she saw traces of herself in both rachel and the woman who torments peter um and mm-hmm. alva the woman who's tormented by him mm-hmm. and okay. uh which i think is so who indicative of uh not even just like a, a i mean even a healthy relationship um but uh, I was—I thought it was interesting that the producers have, were toying with the idea of casting the same actress in both roles, yeah. which yeah. I kind of think if there was a way to do that without it feeling like uh, so incredibly on the nose, mm-hmm. which I don't know if there is, but I yeah. feel like that would have been like, that would have been so awesome. They did make them look kind of similar though, I think. Although the director says that that was a, a fluke. But all three of the women there, they do, they feel very connected in a way. Well, and the, and the therapist too. So like Alva, therapist, Rachel, and uh, vampire lady, like all seem. I felt like Alva seemed very different. I think Um, they all look like 80s ladies. Well, yes, true. Well, I mean, they're, they're brunettes. They... So you mean more in looks? Yeah, in looks, not the okay. way they act, but no, because like I, I thought yeah. that so definitely Jennifer Beals and then uh, the other woman that he had met at the mm-hmm. bar um, looked similar. But I do agree that if they if they had cast them as the same person, um, I think yeah, it would have been too much, too on the money, maybe. Um, no, but I guess uh, so for Alva thinking about it like in the the yuppie terms and stuff like that she seemed like pretty much the opposite of that world so like and and like she was like the good definitely uh, you know and she kind of dresses like a like a uh small town mm-hmm. school teacher or something um but uh but as far as looks go i could i could see how they're all kind of on the same wavelength i think they all have curly hair possibly and yeah. like long well, brown, I, like 80s poopy yeah hair. i love yeah. that like this when um when Nicolas Cage finds basically I just I think the reason that I'm into the movie like from the beginning is because of the weird psychosexual analysis of his character that's all very interesting to me the like the the fact that the movie manages to kind of tell you what his problem is like what he struggles with without telling you explicitly although they also have this therapist character like basically say up front like what his problem is that like you want something that does not exist. Um, And that he, the scene where um, is Rachel, the girl from the bar or is that the vampire lady? That's the vampire lady. Okay. Whatever the other lady's name, 
when she leaves that note and he finds it and that's like the scariest moment in the movie <laughs> like for him personally <laughs> yeah. is like oh, and when he tells his therapist like I just wanted her to get out of here I wanted her to leave and then like when he's having sex with Rachel he's always in the same position and wearing the same clothes like he's wearing a t-shirt and his boxers and it's basically like he's jerking off. Like he's wearing the same clothes that he's wearing when he's like watching Nosferatu and stuff. Like he isn't having sex. Like he, it, it just, to me, it suggests that he's imagining all of that stuff. And it's just this like masturbatory fantasy of a woman who like won't let him go actually have a date with the lady because of that is terrifying to him on some level like having to talk to a person or like get to know them or do anything other than sex and then even it it just it it seemed like what he's like his fantasy of women is so much easier to deal with like and not only that but it's like less terrifying than real women but also equally as satisfying sexually I guess in some way it seemed like a weird comment on like pornography and like that you know like almost like anticipating something like that um Mm -hmm. that he dreamed up this woman who like just um controlled every aspect of his life basically so yeah on that Mm -hmm. note did you guys I couldn't tell if this was something that I was noticing or not but there was at one point where it was at least definitely deliberate where like there was like a weird fixation on people's feet in this movie. Like they would always show somebody's feet. Uh, like I remember early on, they just for several seconds, there's a shot of his feet. He's not wearing any socks. He's got like loafers on or something. Mm-hmm. And then they cut uh, Alva. Or is it Alma or Alva? I thought it was Alva. Alba, but it's, it's Al- Alva. Alva, yeah. Alva, okay. And then they cut to her as she's walking away, but they just show her feet. Like mm-hmm. they don't show her like leaving through the There's doorway. There's also they just show her. when he's having sex with the lady from the club and they're on the couch, he pulls his leg up in a really weird way to take his shoes off. That almost feels like oh, they yeah. weren't even his legs. And that stood out to me a lot. And yeah. I, of course, like the part where he's wearing no socks, I was like, what is that telling me? Like what? What was that saying? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't I, know. I did not know what to make of that. <laughs> and like, I feel like even if I went back now, having seen the full movie and I watched it a second time, um, it's like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that would make sense. Or maybe, yeah, some kind of motif. But, um, yeah. I don't know. There was a lot. It, like, yeah. it's I, I really enjoy talking about this one because it was, um, like I said, I didn't necessarily enjoy it watching it. But by the end of it, you could kind of see like, so there was like stuff going on. I just it's you know, I think it's probably one that you have to watch a couple times. Yeah, I feel like maybe it really does like watching, knowing that the film is going to be ambiguous about whether or not he's a vampire, like actually helps you enjoy the film more. Like if you watch the be- I don't know. And maybe that's wrong. But like watching the beginning of the movie with the bat and everything. If you. It's kind of more. I, I don't know. It's again, it's working on like two levels because in in within the film, the vampire transformation is being driven by Lowe. Like he is is helping manufacture that fantasy for himself by like watching all these movies and imitating Nosferatu in the club and like all that stuff. But then in the movie, 
there's also these like bursts of like gothic old fashioned film score. They're like the way that it shoots the city is very like, you know, trying yeah. to make it look like this kind of castle weird area. They're those kind of voyeuristic like bat's eye view of of his apartment and his office and like everything that's happening. Like so Yeah. I thought I thought just real quick, I thought it was really cool in the opening credits how you had like the um, kind of gothic sounding music as mm -hmm. as like the establishing shots are getting lower and lower yeah. into the city, like other music is coming in that's more mm -hmm. like music of the city. I thought that yeah. was really cool. I thought the yeah. score was really quite good for such a cheap ass movie, like under two million. I thought I thought the score was great. I, like at the end when he's wandering down the streets and he's doing that weird like primal scream, the score is kind of imitating it. And then also there's all those horns like in the background from cars. Like there's, and when it would come in and it kind of, the how abrupt it was <laughs> when it would suddenly be there and how old fashioned, like it sounded like an old movie kind of. Like yeah. I really, and it was, I thought pretty also. Like I really liked the score. Um, apparently the director with those, like those establishing shots and like the last shot of the city are very important because he wanted it to feel like the city was the thing that was driving him insane. And so like in the beginning of the movie, when he's in his therapist's office, the city is very like indistinct mm -hmm. through the window in the background. And then it becomes increasingly like clear in like the, in, you know, his, through his window and all that kind of stuff, like as the movie progresses. Interesting. One, yeah. one, one funny thing about the score that I read was that they um, they ran out of money when they were making this movie, so they had to outsource the 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 scoring to like some orchestra in like I don't know Chechnya or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Interesting. Yeah. Um, something you said, I guess, when you were talking about the city, um, in the final third of it, I guess one thing I liked was. Uh, and this could have been due to the edits, but just the he like it, it makes a cut and he's already like talking to himself or somebody else. And and in some cases, you see who we you see who he thinks he's talking to. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, he's just like a guy walking down the sidewalk talking about something to somebody. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, I guess that could have been the edits. But I don't know. Yeah, I do. I mean, I guess to quote the name of the podcast that you heard about this from. Like, I do wonder how this got made. Like, mm -hmm. I guess it was a really low budget film, but it seems very improbable. Even in and the it was non-union. Was it? OK. So outside, outside. though. So there's when he's walking on his date at the beginning of the movie and he's walking on the street talking about the Fantastic Four just off screen. There are tons of protesters with bullhorns like shouting out. At really? The production. Yeah. OK. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but yeah, like, yeah. It seems like it's a very strange debut film because like. You, I feel like uh, there's some filmmakers where they would make something like that's this weird or almost experimental uh, mm -hmm. or I guess almost just asks this much of an audience. Um, but uh, to do that for your first film when people don't already have like some idea of what to expect from you and then also to just play with this these genres and just all mm -hmm. these like, you know, just play with film itself, like having this guy have this breakdown. Uh, very ambitious, really swinging for the fences for the first movie. From what and I could find, also he... going kind of off the cuff and letting Nicolas Cage eat a bug because he wants to. Right. So was that <laughs> was that improv? <laughs> that no, was his was... idea. So he was. He... Oh, yeah. okay. He was, 
he was going to eat raw eggs. And yeah. that was like what was in the script. And then Nicolas Cage said, um, and the way that he, I've heard him describe this on multiple things, but the way he said it was he saw it as a business decision. Because if he eats a bug, it doesn't cost any more than eating eggs, but it's like the bus blowing up in speed in terms of the effect that it has on the audience. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, and, and it, then the director made him good, do a second uh, take. Yeah, he did twice. Oh, really? Yeah. And then used the first take. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. But yeah, kind of really, to fuck um, with him, I think. <laughs> his face right after he does it, he, he, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting, too, because, you know, Mike, you're talking about all these people, you know, how it's surprising that, you know, that people, you know, they were that, that this was chosen as a, like a first movie and all that. And mm. it turns out that was a really bad decision because it ruined all these people's careers. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah, this yeah, guy so... didn't make another movie until 1997. And then that was the only other movie he made. And this what was movie? also I mean, this um, I don't even know the name. Of it. I've never heard of it. Okay. Um, but the screenwriter wrote After Hours. And then this is like really his next oh, wow. thing. I could and see that. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, but I think the, I feel like I think, you know, I guess I can't blame anyone, but I, you know, this did not get, this was not well received, but I think people were wrong about it. Like, I think this was a really like interesting take on a very bizarre time in American culture. Yeah. Um, you know, a decade kind of before the next sort of like definitive <laughs> take on that culture. And I think this one's better. And also it's impressive that it could be that insightful about it while in the midst of it, you know, like American yeah. Psycho, Even I mean, it's written earlier, but it's looking back from a distance on a particular time period. This film is representing the time period in which it exists and yet still has like a timeless quality to it i think there's a rep i think because it is beyond just satire that it has this kind of like character study at its core it feels applicable beyond the 80s yeah yeah and i think that part of like when i would if i were to compare them if I were to compare and contrast um i think that the film adaptation of american psycho uh is very i might not be using this word right but i believe it's glib um, yes i agree yeah and i think it has a lot of the 90s like cynicism and nihilism yes uh to it and i i do like that film i think as i said like american psycho I, the film i think struggles to rise above storytelling that thinks it's smarter than it is like writing yeah. that thinks it's smarter than it is. I think the filmmaking, the performances are smarter than the text on which they're based. I think this movie in a weird way is smarter than it thinks it is. <laughs> like this movie yeah. almost feels made by sort in a, in a somewhat playful, like creatively fruitful environment um, that still took the film it was making seriously, but doesn't feel pretentious to me at all and yeah. that also i think owes a lot to nicholas cage's take on this character to nicholas cage playing this character in such a weird way as opposed to like if it was like richard gear in this role i think this movie would be insufferable yeah. you know yeah i agree yeah i i don't i don't think this movie works at all without nicholas cage i really don't. yeah i would agree i really like nicholas cage i i think i love him we've kind of we've 
touched on this as you guys were discussing his other movies, but I do think that with the right story or director that he's unrivaled. I think he's, he's yeah. just uh, kind of, especially if you look at like actors now, either, either people who've been in the game for a while or people who are like up and coming. I really don't think there's anybody that does what he does. And I think as far as somebody who even like, so he's had some really popular success. It's been a while, but um, I really like that. He keeps choosing. He, he does a lot of the straight to video, like maybe kind of crappy movies, but like, uh, like Mandy, uh, mm-hmm. mom and dad, um, Joe, Joe was really Joe, good. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. So yeah, he, he, he's still like definitely, he picks roles that make me, he, he, his performances and then the roles he picks show me that he is a person who really loves and cares about art or movies yes. uh, in some way. And clearly he also has his own priorities and his personal life and all this type of thing. But, uh, but no, I really, I like Nicolas Cage. I think he gets a bad rap. Um, but I was going to say though, I think that I, I don't know that I could back this up if pressed, but I feel like Robert Pattinson is, he's definitely not as, uh, bombastic typically i mean he he has his moments in like lighthouse and stuff like that but i feel like there's some sort of thing that i would link them with like they Mm -hmm. they've had great popular success and Mm -hmm. they can they can kind of go back and forth in a way that a lot of actors can't like there's roles that cage has had or that patents has had that should sink another actor's career but then they they have another you know Mm -hmm. uh twilight or another i don't know another big hit um, I don't know, but yeah, I really, yeah, I, he, I think I was thinking of Michael Shannon, which I'm always am, but yeah, like I can see that, especially like physically, where like I feel like Michael Shannon can go can can play like a 70 year old guy or like a guy in his 30s. He can look very handsome or he can look very like weird and scary. He makes like he's in, you know he's general zod and then he's also in his like teeny tiny you know shotgun stories type movies and he can go yeah. back and forth between mainstream success getting oscar nominations and or then knives out yeah and then like little movies he's willing to take like i mean maybe even more so than cage like willing to take a smaller role like they're not like nicholas cage is way more of a star but that they have the same that they're extremely weird presences <laughs> in a film yeah but can still carry it yeah it's so weird looking at i'm looking at his his imdb right now first of all he's made more movies than anybody else ever Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but it is so like leaving las vegas to the rock and then he does the rock con air face off and then he does city of angels which whatever but then he does snake eyes and yeah. like just going from that, from if you like just thinking about City of Angels to Snake Eyes. <sighs> and this is like his and most I... commercial stretch because mm-hmm. then from there he's, but then after that he does Bringing Out the Dead and then Gone in 60 Seconds. So it's like, it's this weird thing where like, yeah, he is very, very comfortable, even though like um, De Palma and Scorsese are the, the names behind those movies. Like those are very daring choices when mm-hmm. your next movie is Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and I think he, I really admire the ethic that he brings to filmmaking. I really like that he was like, I'm going to do this super weird, no money indie movie after like, basically like the things that made him a star. He did mm-hmm. Peggy Sue got married, raising Arizona moonstruck. And then he was like 
getting tons of pressure from his representation to like you need to do a like a big mainstream movie now so that we can like solidify you having an acting career for the rest of your life and he kind of was gonna go in that direction he was like nope i want to do this one and he does a super weird experimental performance he sort of he doesn't abandon method but he talks about how like when he started this movie he was like very firmly like a method actor the kind of guy who was like he would have his teeth removed to you know play a veteran or whatever um and then in the course of making this movie, he kind of, he didn't leave it behind, but he was kind of like, it's okay to be performative in a film. Like, there's no reason why, like, as I said, like, realism should be the ben- the only benchmark by which a performance is judged, which is, like, completely how we judge movies now. Like, that's what we think of as good acting. And there are yeah. some reasons for that. But, for instance, in, like, other genres, we don't, like think that like gravity's rainbow is bad writing or something because it's like you know modernist or postmodernist. we don't think that uh avant-garde music is like you know poor quality music like we recognize like oh this person is trying to do something different with the art form instead of saying wow he's such a bad actor (laughs) or this guy's such a bad musician it's just you know several minutes of silence like we understand that people who make music and people who write books are artists but we don't think sometimes of act as of actors as artists and creative people and he i think is very determined i think it's very admirable to be like i'm gonna bring this same ethic to face off and like yes the stakes are huge yes there's way more studio pressure to do something as conventional as possible and i'm going to not let that happen (laughs) yeah it does it does make me sad treasure Nice. It does make me sad that he's made uh, six movies a year for the last five years. Yeah. <laughs> that is I mean, pretty Maybe crazy. if we wrote a movie, we could get him to be in it. I'm almost That's certain. That's very that... attainable. <laughs> That'd be fun. I would love to talk to him. As long as we get enough funding me to too. help him pay his, pay his tax bill, he'll be fine. I love, yeah. I love hearing him talk about acting because mm-hmm. there is none... To me, there's none of this, the pretension that can make... I love listening to actors talk about acting most of the time, but there's no pretension, and yet he still takes it extremely seriously. Like, I love... He, there's such a wonderful mix of him being serious about his craft, but also playful with it and not taking it too seriously. There's yeah. something, too, about it that feels very instinctual. Maybe it's just in the way he tries things. Like, he does weird things to motivate him, like in Vampire's Kiss he had the crew pour yogurt yogurt on his toes to get him aroused i don't fucking get it but uh it, it, oh, i guess I it, 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 it guess nice. <laughs> it does kind of remind me of uh kubrick who insisted that like he was making choices based on instinct like people would mm-hmm. ask him about his his directing and you know he would say like i don't even really want to talk about it because i don't i don't want to examine it too closely and so he kind of reminds me of that where he's Mm -hmm. he's doing something that's uniquely his own um but it's like a muscle you know yeah well and it's weird because i was kind of thinking about as you know you hear about the behind the scenes for this movie and you're like there was definitely tension between like the director and Nick Cage. And you hear about him wanting to be the California Klaus Kinski. And it's like, okay, well, that doesn't sound like a great working environment necessarily, if that means what I think it means. And yet, unlike, say, Jared Leto or something, 
I think people have positive experiences with Cage. Like they have weird experiences, but he's worked with extremely, you know, the most famous directors of our time. Like David yeah. Lynch loves Nicolas Cage. Like, yeah. Um, I think Scorsese loves Nicolas Cage. Like, I mean, he kind of has to, I suppose, but, and you know, Coppola, like all these people, like, and he can also work with a first time director and it still didn't feel like he was like dominating the guy. Like maybe it was easy to get what he wanted out of Bierman than it would be out of like, you know, Scorsese or David Lynch or something. But I don't think he was like flexing. I think he was doing like what he thought the movie needed. And he's making this incredibly cheap movie and saying things like, well, I'll eat a cockroach if that will help the movie be successful. You yeah. know, <laughs> Um, and Twice. like Port of Call New Orleans, like he was trying to make the movie good and that movie's good, you know, yeah. so. Well, yeah, that's another big name director. I mean, yeah, I, mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily a blockbuster guy, but yeah, Herzog. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. Well, I guess uh, we've. Oh, so there was an episode. I think it was the Jerry Maguire episode that I listened to when I was walking around the other day. Uh, multiple times because that's a very long episode. I took multiple walks, but uh, <laughs> we had a, I think it was that episode. We had a feature called Lil Stragglers where uh, it was the things that we hadn't gotten to. Yes. Uh, does anybody have any little stragglers? I do. Okay. Mm -hmm. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, um, I've gone through my notes. So, Oh, although I did, I did write LOL. For uh, when he's in the taxi cab, and I think he like throws the money at the guy. Yeah. And the taxi driver is just like, "Hey, crazy Jews!" Yeah. It made me laugh. Yeah. Um, very New York to me. So so much. So many of my notes, like up until the movie started, click. Like it's, I can looking at my notes, I can see a very like. There's a there's absolutely a point where I start liking the movie, because all of my notes up until that point are like questions on like, what is yeah. this movie? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. I liked um, the whole file conceit is hilarious to me. I love that, like, it doesn't matter at all, but he has to pretend like it does. And it's seemingly the only work he does the entire, like, week of the film. And he yeah. is also not the one who does it. Like, yeah. it felt like a beautiful, like, way of explaining, like, how insignificant and meaningless his life is. Um I uh, I also noted like the picture of Kafka on his desk. I liked the so I if I may indulge myself. I I read so okay. George Will in 1984 in the Washington Post like wrote um, kind of an analysis of yuppies. Um, and he said he said that they are uh among the many hard-charging Americans between 25 and 40 who seem to combine extraordinary ambition and extraordinary insecurity. One ambition is to assuage their insecurity by means of an elaborate, all-absorbing strategy of socially correct consumption. Um, 
And I, 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 I thought that that was like a, that to me connected very like he said the supposed independence from their parents frees the yuppie to express desire and pleasure in new ways. Yet under the banner of the yuppie, these desires are also reformulated as a problem of sociability. The yuppie distinguishes himself from other baby boomers by his tastes and aesthetics, which are continually measured against other yuppies' social expressions. The yuppie creates a form of identity focused on establishing an, an inherently a natural relationship of consumption with other people and objects, and this is also a form of identity established by the vampire. Since their single test is one of socially correct consumption, the yuppie, the yuppie like the vampire, represents a dead space in the possibilities of ethical self-engagement in the 80s. And I'm thinking about that I was like, while watching the movie. It's like part of what Cage wants is to be special. Like he doesn't want to be <laughs> like everyone else. I think that's part of the like I'm a vampire and the like wanting to become a vampire. It's like, it's both like what he already is, but also like this need, like he has to be important <laughs> in some way or like, or it reminds me of, you know, when you feel like something's wrong with you, actually having someone diagnose it and name it can feel really good. <laughs> like, you know, that's having the excuse of like, oh, I'm a vampire. <laughs> That's why. That's interesting yeah. because that remind. I feel like his managerial uh, style of not mm -hmm. actually doing anything and just barking orders is so indicative of like a caricature of somebody who thinks who's trying to be important, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like the thing that he's being asked to do, uh, like the the humbling and more. A uh, productive way of doing that would be to help her, but mm -hmm. the way of the 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 thing that makes him uh, in charge and makes him important is for him to yell at somebody about it and thus mm -hmm. have it not yeah. get done. It's interesting, right? Well, he yeah. has like, and especially I think the the career of literary agent is so appropriately chosen because it's like he has this proximity to things that actually matter or to actual creativity, but he's just sucking the life out of it and like the you know he's feeding off of other people's creativity and he it, like the desperation over the file and the need to basically when the guy on the phone is like oh don't worry about that that's fine take yeah. your time and then he's like well he's furious uh <laughs> and like he needs that to be true otherwise he serves no purpose like the only thing he has to do is yell at her to find the file and if the file doesn't matter then he also doesn't matter yeah. um yeah and i think that that like it contrasts there so there was this other sorry longish quote from that same academic paper that i read and and it's what made me start thinking of the movie as being kind of like Eyes Wide Shut in that they're kind of both about the nature of desire. But it's like in yuppie, like yuppie desire is a chore, like because you just must want things like there's no and you just must consume them. There's no intimacy. There's no relationship. There's no evolution of that desire. That's just like use shit up and then move on to the next thing. Um and it also seems like both are ultimately about like kind of the the dangers of a desire without intimacy. Like there's an implication in the beginning of the film that his life is basically going to a job that doesn't matter, then going out to clubs because that's where he's supposed to be going and having sex with like random women and then immediately like never wanting to see them again. Um, and, you know, this is taking place in the 80s where that kind of like sexual expression was actually becoming like increasingly dangerous because of things like AIDS and stuff like that. Um, but they, 
one of the things this reminded me of too, I think Mike, you were talking about the way that like the film would edit and you'd like hear him talking and like not know immediately like who he's talking to or like what, like yeah. what the context for the scene is. So that kind of happens in like when his, when the therapy is kind of introduced, he said like, we hear him say, I wanted her to, to disappear. I wanted her to get the hell out of there. Um, and then the therapist says, um, and yet just the night before you wanted her very badly, kind of like pointing out his confusion. And like she does, even though those scenes are like making fun of like of yuppie psychotherapy, she does like from the first time we meet her when he's not even paying attention accurately say what his problem is she like it says we cut to her office and there's like voiceover of her talking in the office I think before we can even see her where she's saying starting with your earliest years when you somehow were taught to expect something that wasn't even halfway attainable um to this insight which certainly is Lowe's primary problem Peter looks at his watch and stands to leave so like he's like not even <laughs> Like, it's so rote for him to just go here and pretend like everything is so performative, yeah. even when it's actually getting at the heart um, yeah. of his problem. Um, I love, I love, love, love the scene in which he can't see himself. I love that there's two mirrors so that first you see him looking in the mirror and like it's from the side. So like he's looking in the mirror above the sink in front of him and going like, holy shit, I can't see myself. But there's also a mirror next to him. So like the audience can clearly see that he's his full body is reflected in that other mirror. Yeah. That is so funny. And then when he like leans forward and touches it and there's like <laughs> yet a third, like a second reflection of him in the yeah. scene. That was great staging. I thought I thought it was so it was like simultaneously so funny. And so like that reminded me of like Jim Carrey or something, but then also like really sad. And it's right after that, that he goes to his office and he's like hiding behind his couch. Cause he's so scared. Yeah. Um, let's see if there's anything else. Um, apparently the scene where he goes nuts and destroys his apartment, um, was way more elaborate and violent than was originally planned and he just broke nearly everything in the apartment <laughs> and they only they so they couldn't reshoot it so they <laughs> can only use like that take um and then uh oh this was a funny thing from the director's commentary apparently uh cage was quite quite proud of his ability to catch a pigeon in the park scene but beerman shatters his illusion by revealing that the birds were drugged and then beerman goes did you think hey i'm a really great actor i can catch pigeons <laughs> <laughs> um let's see i thought the shot of him walking up to the phone booth after he's bought the teeth was like so gorgeous and weird and awesome i loved it um uh let's see i love when he's like when he really becomes like nosferatu in the club and he's like holding his hands and his shoulders in the exact same way i was like looking up pictures like from the from the movie and it's like so well done it's so accurate um also the mirrored set where he does kill that lady like there's a lot of mirrors in this movie and that set was amazing um like it really made this like shitty 80s club kind of feel like a giant gothic castle because it's being reflected infinitely um behind them yeah uh and it's on this like weird weird red elevated platform um 
I hadn't I thought also, about that. Yeah. But uh, that is it almost. And I, I think there were like some maybe dark reds here and there. Like it did kind of have like a spooky. I hadn't thought about that at all. My main thought was, why is this room so empty? It seemed like it would be a fun room yeah. to party in. But. He starts wearing, um, after he's transformed into a vampire, he starts wearing like a red uh, handkerchief in his pocket and his like tie oh, yeah. is like a brighter red and everything. Um, oh, yeah. He's yeah. such a dork. Um, I also, the scene where he walks out into the sun, it's just to me like when that happens, I'm like, how do people watch this movie and think it's not good? Like, I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> like, I mean, when he comes around the corner and he's suddenly, like, bombarded by the light, I'm just like, this is so fun and I awesome, see, and it looks nice. I could see general audiences pretty much just checking out after the first third or first half or so. Absolutely. Because, yeah, you know, a lot of people want to just know, and that's not even really a bad thing. That's just depends what you go to the movies for. But, like, I mean, it's it's a weird movie. I can totally see. But until uh, I, until, I, I, until I knew... I mean, I was like frustrated. Like I wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't like vague in a way that felt fun to me. It was a vague in a way that was really irritating. And then it was like, oh, and then the movie just tells me that, oh, actually none of this is vague at all. And so then I kind of feel like, well, what was your intent? Right? Like what, what were you actually trying to tell me in the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie? I don't, I don't actually know. And I don't know. If I feel like movie because knows. it's inner, it's hard. To, I mean, I can't go back and say what I would have thought if I didn't know what happened. I like I agree with you. I think the movie probably rewards like rewatching. Um, but I think because it was already being intercut with the therapist's office, like I think that was my clue that like, oh, this is not this is not going to be an interview with a vampire where he's telling this story to someone in order to give it kind of like verisimilitude. And we're supposed to be like. You know, that's the framing device that tells us that this actually happened. I think because sure. of those scenes with the therapist, I was like, this guy's fucking bananas. And <laughs> this is unlikely to be actually happening. Because, I mean, if, and if it were truly a real vampire story, then it's a shit. It's shitty. Like <laughs> the like point of view shots of like the bat and everything are like become a lot stupider if this was really like, you know, American Werewolf in London right. or something like but this movie that. has a this movie does have a reputation as a shitty movie. So that's why I mm-hmm. think going in having not seen it, going into it, like it's colored by the like I thought this was yeah. literally a vampire movie. I thought yeah. this was a bad um, vampire movie. <laughs> I love when he's uh leaving when he's having his final like fantasy conversation with a therapist and she introduces him to that girl mm-hmm. and then they're like walking out and he's like, Oh, uh, well I did rape someone a couple nights ago. <laughs> and then like her, that's so funny. Uh, and then her like, cu- like brushing it off. And then he starts to leave again. And he turns and says, I did also murder someone. Yeah. And she's, I loved that scene. I, I mean, I guess I really just, I like the movie endings because <laughs> The ending of this movie is so good and it really I enjoy I don't it think is. it is of a piece with Sleepaway Camp like I think the rest of the movie is also really good but the ending is like totally makes it worth your time in my opinion um and I, then I, my, sure. mm-hmm. so it was kind of weird because the lady that like meets him at the therapist office or whatever um I'm pretty sure that's the mom from the stupids with Tom Arnold which I watched she looks familiar ago. to me yeah, I think that's where she was from. But also what was weird is I watched I watched this on Thursday. No, I watched this on Friday, Vampire's Kiss. And then uh, Sunday, Sarah and I watched Devil in a Blue Dress, which Jennifer Be- Jennifer Beals is in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this had like weird, uh, I don't know, connections with 
movies I like random old movies that I have just watched recently. I don't know. Her name's Jessica Lundy, and she is in the stupids, Mike. <laughs> yes, okay. She looks her IMDb like... like next to her headshot is Tom Arnold in that boater hat. <laughs> <laughs> that movie that is a secret. I know you success, love it. In my I know opinion. you love that it. That is a very well, that will be movie. on that's I'm sure you'll make us watch it at some point. Um the, <laughs> no, the next triple feature. Yeah. I'm going to finally pick three winners for you guys because I'm tired of picking like movies okay. I haven't seen in their crap. My next triple feature but then we'll go the... back to shit. My next triple feature is the last three Nicolas Cage movies. What's that? Okay. I don't know. Is there is a primal <laughs> one of them? I would like to watch Primal. I heard that was That's probably like ten fun. movies ago. Could be. Probably. <laughs> um the last thing that I wanted to say is like I was watching the film and like thinking like I kind of wish that when he was there's a car that pulls up next to him when he's talking to the corner of wall of the building and I kind of wanted that to be uh Alva and her brother and her brother just gets out of the car and kills him right there I was kind of like wouldn't it be cool if we saw like from a long lens just saw that happen and that was the end of the movie but then I really like the part where he leaves the wall and he's walking down the street having a crazy conversation with Sharon like in his head and then on the and then he's climbing the stoop like they make it to his apartment he's climbing the steps to his apartment and he screams at her for being a bitch basically yeah and the woman in his head and and Nicolas Cage said on the director's comment he was like that creeps me out like seeing <laughs> me turn on a dime there to how he starts screaming at her and then make and saying you're you just want to know oh am i a vamp how did i become a vampire can we have children like i wouldn't trade that <laughs> part of the movie <laughs> like it's so funny and so like tragic um anyway this movie fucking rules it's so good he's so awesome people should stop memeing this movie even though it is funny it's funny on fucking purpose you freaking nerds there you have it folks the final word the final <laughs> word and the final little straggler so that brings us <laughs> to that brings us to the cruise minute which i actually have one this week oh Whoa. good i got one too you go first okay so i was listening to our a matter of life and death episode. And Andrew refers to the new top gun movie as Tomp gun on accident. And then you Tomp? correct yourself. You, you call it Tomp gun. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to tall call the new uh, top gun movie. Tomp gun. That's pretty <laughs> funny. I don't remember that. That's my I like that. I mean, you, you do it, but you, you catch it and correct it right away. But I just started laughing like Tomp gun. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That rules. We gotta get shirts. We gotta get shirts with that. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. <laughs> let's start promoting this. Let's start promoting the movie for them for the studio. But as Tomp Gun, Tomp Gun, get posters made, ship them out to yeah, the. Yeah, we'll do like we'll do like those tweets or comments on like um you know Hollywood Reporter or whatever that are clearly by like studio Shills. plants or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but we'll just call it Tomp Gun. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we should I think we should get approved as like Rotten Tomatoes contributors. And all have like it very, very earnest review. I know it can. Very earnest reviews, uh, and just refer to it as Tomp Gun. Tomp Gun, Gun is a masterpiece. <laughs> and then you could have the the sequel could be Paul F. Tomp Gun, something, right? Huh? Nice. Never mind. And then is he in it? 
Sure, no. he could be in it. He can no. play a plane. Okay. I don't think he's. I don't think no, he's have, not I don't in think, it. And I think there should be a disclaimer at the beginning of the movie saying it actually. Paul F. Tompkins. That's good. Any, Paul any, F. Any, any relation to anybody in real life to the title of this movie is purely coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um. So my my cruise minute is just. It's actually really sad. I'm. I pulled up oh. Tom Cruise news, and it's all just like kind of sad stuff. It's like. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's Andy yeah, Newton stuff. It's like there's there's an article about Kelly Preston who died this week. Um, yeah. About and Kelly it's, Preston died. Yeah, she died yeah. yesterday, or the day before. Um, but it's How? A, the the, the link of cancer. the link of the article is uh, Kelly Preston punches all caps Tom Cruise in iconic Jerry Maguire scene, um, and uh, then everything else is like. The, the article that came out, the interview with Fanny Newton about how terrible shooting Mission mm-hmm. Impossible 2 was. Uh, See, just people I read that article that you shared. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he came off as like that terrible. No. No, he, came off, he okay. came off as a human being. I think she was trying to avoid people interpreting. Like, she kept saying, like, I'm not. Like, she kept trying to make it clear, like, he was under so much pressure and he right. knew the movie was bad. Yeah. You know, and you know what? She doesn't have to lie about him sending her weird Scientology gifts, you know, if that's no. what he did. No, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I, and I read it that way, too. Um, but it is, it's just like the new the news that's been following that. It's like like the, the biggest news item about Tom Cruise is. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Katie Holmes follows Dandy Newton on social media now because of that mm-hmm. article or whatever. Um, oh. That's like the uh, probably all she's legally allowed to do. Probably, because like, like Katie Holmes can't talk about Tom Cruise. She can't give Shh. interviews about anything that happened in that period of her life. But she can like a tweet about Tandy Newton. She <laughs> says one wrong word and Zena is dragging her off into the shadows, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's gonna she'll... probably take her child forever. Well, that will teach her. <laughs> yeah, I guess... and like I, that's the thing. Like I, I read that interview with Tandy Newton. I'm like, man, Tandy Newton's either very brave or very stupid because. Mm-hmm. She's totally gonna get t- fucked with now. Maybe. Yeah, I don't want my. Cru- I also don't want my cruise minute to read like, uh, "Hey guys, everybody's being mean to Tom this week. What's going on?" Uh, that's, not, that's, that's not what I mean. It's just like, oh, we- look at all look at all this stuff that's not as fun to read, and so it just makes yeah. me realize that maybe he's a psychopath underneath it all. I we think, acknowledge I mean, mm-hmm. we acknowledge that we have a complicated relationship with Tom. Absolutely. Yeah. And my I'm, my my take on this news was like, I bet the worse the movie is the closer he gets to 2005 tom cruise like (laughs) like when the movie's bad and he knows it and maybe that's why he stopped making movies that he doesn't produce for the most part yeah is then he can be sure that the movie will be good i guess well he produced mission impossible too so that's true that is a good point what in the fuck man uh, Tom, if you'd like to come on the show and explain yourself, uh, we're yes. Ready oh my God, boy, would we welcome that? Please do. We could do an interview. Just have a nice long interview. Talk about eyes wide shut and whatever. Anyways, I want to um, talk about interview with the vampire. Speaking, I want to know what I want to interview know. with the interview with the vampire. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interview with the vampire in interview with the vampire. <laughs> oh boy. This is a good radio. <laughs> um. <laughs> Thanks for joining us tonight, folks. But wait, Mike. Should we wrap it up? But okay. wait. The listeners want to know what we're going to talk about next week. 
Thank you for reminding me, Andrew. I almost forgot to mention, and I actually have completely forgotten what the movie is next. Oh, week. you friggin' <laughs> dumb dumb. <laughs> you are going to be watching The Lone Ranger twice, probably. The Lone Ranger. Why twice? Because I got to send you my edit of it. <laughs> oh, no. Now, is this... Uh, you could just watch my edit. Well, but then I wouldn't have any... Uh, that would be a pretty will obscure seem more film good. to do on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> the kit edit. <laughs> Now is this, yeah, all right. is this the film from 1956? Uh, no, but you probably do want to watch that too. I've seen it. Well, it's better. Boom. boom. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. How long is your the edit? Long... Get? I'm getting it under two hours. That's my goal. And how long is the... Uh, the so we're watching the Johnny Depp one. You don't Nine have to hours. watch my edit. I'm just, jo- I'm just joking. Okay. It's long though. Two and a half hours or something. Yeah, I was going to say those movies, those Disney movies were really long for a while. Still are. Although they don't make movies anymore, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> uh, nobody does. But here's something funny. The 1956 um, Lone Ranger was uh, scored by a guy named David Butt Ulf. Hmm. I don't know. That I is don't, funny. I, I don't know why Kid doesn't think that's funny, but I'm glad Mike yeah. has a sense of humor. I don't think she heard Any you. Ennio Morricone died. We know that, right? What's that? Ennio Morricone died. Yeah, I made. Uh, well, yeah, I won't mention. I won't mention my job on this show. Um, okay. But oh, I keep punching this light when I'm stretching. Did you look um, at the picture of David Buttoff? Like, no. if you Google his Can't, name, it's not funny the second looks, time. Andrew looks, already made the. He joke. looks very. Uh, <laughs> he looks like angry. he does. He looks like a Buttoff <laughs> for sure. Yeah. No doubt about it. That is unmistakable. Um, so thanks for joining us tonight, folks. Join us next week for The Lone Ranger, the uh, 2000, I'm going to guess 2000 and 7. No. No. It's like two. Am like I close? No. No. 12? Like, yeah. Uh, 12 or 13. Let him guess again. Yeah. 13, okay. okay. <laughs> um, yeah, never seen it. Looking forward to it. Um, slow motion. I think you're going to love it, Mike. What's that? <laughs> I think you're going to love it. I might. You never know. I got weird taste. Um, slow motion triple feature was recorded in the cool basement of an abandoned billiard hall in Iowa. Special thanks to our producer, Lee, the man in the booth who makes us sound great and decides who lives and who dies. If you'd like to contact us, please do so at slow motion triple feature. Oh, slow motion triple at gmail dot biz. All right. It's, com. it's actually dot com. Yeah, it is dot com. Hooray for- <laughs>